Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, joined by my partner, Sandra Crawford-Williamson. On today's episode in Sandra, we have one that we just wrapped up with PR expert Gary Schneeberger, who wrote the book, Bite the Dog, Build a PR Strategy to Make News That Matters. Yeah, I love it. I mean, he's got 30 years of, you know, wit and wisdom and he's put it all into this book. And I love it because the book is a guide for those small business owners and coaches and even large businesses, really, who want to know about PR from someone who's done it for 30 years as a reporter from some decades. And then from the flip side, you know, he's represented companies in Hollywood and in the Christian world and in the secular world, big brands. And so it's, it's part guidebook. But what I love, you know, I'm a storyteller, Steve, as you know. And so he also in the book tells stories of, you know, his career that are just awesome, you know, Super Bowl commercials and, you know, Tim Tebow and focus on the family and some really great stories. So it's a little bit sort of biography. It's a little bit of uh, guidebook and it's a little bit like, you know, um, you're being schooled without feeling like you're in class. So it's a really interesting mixture. Yeah. And uh, I've I, in the questions that I had and the topics that I had, uh, listed out, there was still a handful more. And of those subjects that we didn't get to, I encourage you to buy the book because one of them in particular is, I don't know if everyone remembers the Bible series by uh, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey, but you may remember the kerfuffle about Satan somewhat resembling President Obama and some news outlets thinking that it was intentional. Gary was a part of the PR that helped put the kibosh on that, and it worked rather effectively. Gary also... Some of our listeners may remember in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, Dr. Dobson referred to President Trump as a, quote unquote, baby Christian. Well, one of Gary's clients was the one that actually did that interview and got that news bite. And so Gary leveraged that for his client to get a whole bunch of earned media. And uh, it, it was it was rather, rather great. So my biggest takeaways and the reason that I brought Gary on were to help with uh, the listeners. Let me go back. My my biggest reason for bringing Gary on was to help the listeners to understand the importance of telling your story and how to get on the radar of reporters and bloggers, etc. And we do cover that in, in this interview. My biggest takeaway really in this interview is the formula that he gives at the end. Identity plus strategy plus opportunity times achievement to the power of resilience equals relevance. It's a formula that he gives. He explains what all of those are and how to how to achieve them and how our listeners who may be coaches, maybe consultants, maybe small business owners, maybe managers and organizations, how they can leverage that to help get the message out and uh, get get on to earned media, which he says 80% more effective than advertising. <laughs> Having someone else tell the story is more effective than, uh, than, than telling it yourself. Yeah. And what I love is, um, you know, microphone. Sorry. I was taking a picture for yeah. the Facebook page. Um, 
Okay, start over. You know, what I love, too, is him sharing his personal story, you know, that he was a hugely successful journalist who was running newspapers and editor of this and editor of that. And he was a raging alcoholic because he was, you know, not a Christian. He was, you know, was alone and empty. And the more success he had, the emptier he became. And he didn't realize that the hole he was trying to fill with alcohol and with work and success was the hole, of course, that is left by not knowing Jesus. And so crazy how God works and, you know, had a little bit of a breakdown, rehab, new job, takes him randomly to Palm Springs. And there are these two Christians in the newsroom that come alongside him. And, you know, next thing you know, he knows the Lord, he's in church and, you know, his, he, God just took that alcohol, you know, need away completely for the rest of his life. He took away the need to be a workaholic. And so now he's doing his best work, um, not just in life, but, but also in his career. It's a great story of redemption um, that I know our listeners are going to absolutely love. And many of us can relate to. So let's get to this episode of Eternal Leadership with our guest, Gary Schneeberger. So, Gary, thanks for coming on Eternal Leadership. Uh, Sandra's joined me. And Gary, John loves to start the podcast by asking the guests to tell their story. So let's hear a little bit about you. And you and I go back, way back. Yeah, uh, we go uh, way back, and um, my story really—the the the three word elevator pitch. If you're only going half a floor, would be um, drunk, sober, saved. That was me. Um, I was a, a journalist. I was a typical journalist. I had um, all but one of the vices of journalism, the stereotypical vices of journalism. I was an alcoholic. Um, I smoked cigarettes a lot. And I just didn't drink coffee and still don't for some reason. So I was a, kind of a typical itinerant journalist, uh, 15 years, two and a half years, move on somewhere else, um, was a member of what, you know, I was a member of the secular media, but I didn't know it because I was one of them. Um, I got saved in 1997. This is where I got saved. In a secular newsroom in Palm Springs, California, at the age of 32, that's not quite Saul's conversion to Paul, but it's darn close when you think, I mean, when you get right down to it, it's darn close. Um, and I had quit drinking about six months before that and um, kind of realized that that this idea of AA, while it was great to me because it was my first introduction to that, there was a power greater than me. I thought I was the greatest power in the universe, um, but it wasn't enough to kind of keep me sober. I couldn't understand how a God of my own understanding was going to help me stay sober if my own understanding is what got me in the, all the pickle in the first place. So uh, 15 years of journalism, the last few uh, were as a sober Christian, uh, which was a mind blower and a subject of a whole different day in newsrooms. Um uh, but it did help me understand uh, when I moved into PR then, b about 15 years ago at Focus on the Family, um, I got to, you know, I understand both sides of the questions. I understand what it's like to ask them, what it's like to answer them. So I think that gives me a unique perspective when I'm coaching people, authors, experts, speakers, coaches, and consultants about um, what it does require to, as my book subtitle says, build a PR uh, strategy to make news that matters. Gary, now going back to your decision to quit drinking, uh, knowing you the way that I know you, it was a rather dramatic lead up to that that 
pin that climax, if you will, that pivotal moment when you when you were confronted with where you were in life. So t- 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 I, there are going to be listeners out there that are going to identify with that moment. So take us back to that that season in 1997. Yeah, and it's a uh, it, it's interesting from a leadership perspective because I was a leader. I mean, I had, I, I excelled and exceeded and I wasn't at a job more than like four or five months and I got promoted and I was managing editor of a newspaper in, in Victoria, I mean, in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. And I was achieving and achieving and achieving and achieving, but like the more the achievement went higher, the less the enjoyment of it, uh, you know, would, would track with it. And it, it, there started to be a big gap between what I was achieving and how I felt about what I was achieving. Gary, let's focus on that for a minute. Cause I know there are tons yep. of people out there that can relate to that. The higher you were in your career, the more successful you were, the more responsibility you had, the less the joy. And I know there are tons of listeners out there that are experiencing that in this very moment. I mean, I did for sure. I made it to the C-suite running a a company in many, many countries, made the cover of the Wall Street Journal, thought I was all that. And I was empty and completely miserable. So so that is a moment I think, you know, the listeners out there going, oh, wait a minute, that's me. (laughs) So everything you say after this now, you know, they're they're going to process through their through their own lives. So. So you're you're hugely successful. You're running a newspaper, and you're are you an open alcoholic? Or are you like secret about it, or was it like a social thing? You know, give us a little setting. Yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean check, pretty check, much check. right. Uh, I was very open about it. I was very kind of I I fashioned myself a rogue. Right. It was the it was the '90s, and I was kind of roguish, and and I was successful. So I I felt that that. Uh, excused a lot of the behavior. And, um, but there were many, many, many nights, you know, when the party was over and the friends went home uh, and all those things happen where you're lying in bed and you're wondering, okay, this is all there is to go to bed to and wake up to the next day is the work. Uh, and the work was very satisfying. And, and the pivotal moment for me came uh, at a place where my achievement was the highest it could have been. I was at uh, the Texas annual awards for newspapers and my paper won swept all the awards and my mentor was there and his paper didn't sweep any and people who had worked for me who I had mentored and sent off to run their own papers they didn't win any and I won everything and I remember going out to have a cigarette because I still had that addiction too um, and to have a sip of a drink in the afternoon and the drink actually made me physically ill and it took me literally four seconds to take another sip of it. And that's when I knew that I had a problem, that that this that it wasn't just emotional, this idea that there being some emptiness there. Uh, that was important, too. But my bottom came at that moment when, you know, I was fortunate. My bottom didn't come in a, in a, in a, in a cop car or in a cell or in a hospital room. My, my bottom came in realizing here I am, what should have been the apex of my career, winning awards from the guy who, you know, in front of the guy who trained me in journalism and in front of people I trained in journalism. And I, there was nothing there except for this thing that was making me physically ill. Now, I wasn't the smartest, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, uh, but that was, I realized enough about that. Flew home that day or the uh, next day, checked myself into rehab. And um, as they say, everything's been perfect ever since then. <laughs> <laughs> Not. 
<clears throat> and were you single at the time? Because you said, you know, there were, it was the work. Were you a single Absolutely. guy just single partying? Guy. Yep. So it was all, all work and partying and you win all these awards and then you think, okay, well, that's nice. Let me go get hammered. And you, you finally were like, okay, this is, this is not right. Yeah, it, it, it just was not – it was not fulfilling. It started out being fulfilling. And someone said something to me once or said to, you know, to the group in AA one time, which I thought was very important. And that is it wasn't bad all the time. It was a process. You know what, what you're describing, it was a process of not enough, not enough, not enough. And it becomes more and more that, but in the beginning we'd have to all be insane completely if it was never rewarding or it was never enjoyable in some way. It became less enjoyable because that that became all there was was the 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 work on one end and the partying on the other end. And that just wasn't enough. And when I found Jesus, the beautiful thing about that is uh, the partying went away, except, you know, in the ways that, you know, Steve and I can party and just, you know, have fun and fellowship and talk uh, and, 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 and Christian friends can do. And the, and the workaholism went away. Pride and work didn't go away. Uh, trying to continue to, uh, push the envelope, uh, do things innovatively, differently, challenging, all that stuff stayed. But what was gone was that need to save it or to, uh, make it augmented or do something different with it by using some form of crutch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you describe what you you had this big empty hole, right? And you tried to fill it with work. You tried to fill it with achievements and that didn't work. So then you tried to fill it with alcohol and, um, you know, been there for me, it was shopping. I had all of this success and all these accolades and awards and magazine covers and, but that wasn't enough. So I, I started shopping every city I went. I, I could tell you which duty free carried what brands <laughs> all over the world. And yeah. and that eventually gets to be not enough. And then you realize, okay, there's nothing in this world that can fill this hole. This has to right. come from some other place. Right. And so, and the scary part for me was that and I and I assume you felt the same thing, is that the level of a of achievement that you're able to keep doing it. I mean, I could do it on two hours sleep and I could still lead a newsroom and I could do those kind of things. And that's where God had to intervene for me because I could have kept at a, you know, some people aren't call it fortunate or unfortunate. Some people don't have that, that wiring that it seems like you and I had where you can keep up the addiction, but also keep up the professional success. Mm-hmm. So that bottom's not necessarily going to come with being fired or it's not going to come with, with a, a, you know, a fatal work mistake. It's going to have to come internally. And for me and, you know, uh, for you, it sounds like it has to come spiritually. It has to come in a way that, that stops it before it's too late. And that's, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. It's funny this year, um, uh, uh, on April 28th, uh, can I say April 28th? Is this going to air before April 28th? Yeah, likely. All right. So this year on April 28th, ironically enough, my sobriety will be old enough to drink. It'll turn 21. So, um, that's, that's, that's kind of, uh, I'm going to celebrate that one, uh, in more than I did uh, uh, recently. So, well, that's fantastic. So you win all these awards and, you know, for me, it was being in Manhattan on September 11th. Uh, the first plane flew over my head and I, w- I was there in the city when 9-11 happened. And so that was my wake up call. So you literally fly home the next day and just walk into a rehab on your own. I mean, that's, that's pretty rare and takes a lot of courage. 
Yeah, well, I didn't walk. I was uh, I was semi carried because I had a bit of a nervous breakdown. But um, yes, uh, and and it was hard the first day, and it was hard the second day, and it was a little less hard the third day. And you know, now there there are days. You know, I tell people there are days I remember. There are days I remember why I drank. I'm not going to lie to anybody, but I would never, ever, 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 ever. You know, I I don't still refer to myself. Because of my faith, I believe God healed me of it. I don't refer to myself as a recovering alcoholic. God healed me of it. Um, if I was ever a guy who liked a burger and a beer, I could have one. I didn't. I only drank alcohol to get drunk. So I don't want to get drunk anymore, so I don't have to drink it. So, um, But that has been, um, you know, saved my life for sure, but it saved my professional life as well because um, I would have uh, – I don't know that I would have fallen and failed, but I certainly would have burned out at some point. So, Gary, we have you on because of your book, Bite the Dog, Build a PR Strategy to Make News That Matters. What took you from working as a journalist to going to the other side, working with me at Focus in PR? What what caused that transition in your career? Do you want the glib answer or the honest answer? Honest answer and the glib answer, okay. both. Well the, well, the glib answer is it allows me to continue to work with reporters and not get paid like one. That's the glib answer. <laughs> the, the true full-throated answer is um, especially working at Focus, the opportunity. I mean, it, it was great to create news stories and create those kind of things that brought accolades and awards that we were just talking about. But in the end, to be able to help in this case, Focus, where I started, an organization speak what was in its collective heart to change other people's hearts to make a difference for something that that makes a difference in the in the world, in the culture. That was enormously uh, rewarding. I mean, very few of us get the ability in life to work at something, to earn a living with something we're good at that we feel God has given us giftings for, and on top of that, the, the uppermost, to something that has eternal value. And that, for me, has been uh, the benefit of helping other people unlock what's in their hearts to change other people's hearts is, the, is, is as addictive in a good way as any drink I ever took in my uh, years of alcoholism. And what year did you start at Focus? I started to focus in uh, 2000 and I did a, a couple of years still working in journalism for a magazine there and then transitioned over into that uh, PR role when that came available. And yeah. it was, uh, I, you know, my old friends in journalism refer to that as going over to the dark side. Um, <clears throat> and that's just that's the standard, right? The, the, wow. the sacred profession of journalism, if you go into PR, you're a flack and you're doing the, well, um, yeah, I went over to the dark side and uh, I'm extremely thrilled that I am because I've been able to help so many people achieve those things that they want to achieve to make a difference in the world. So, Gary, where did the title Bite the Dog come from? <clears throat> um, there is an old saying in, in newsrooms all over the country. And that is, and I, I heard it first when I was a cub reporter, you don't want to find stories that are dog bites man stories. Why? Because dogs have been biting men since the two species got to look at each other. What you want to find 
is man bites dog stories because men don't bite dogs that often. And if you can find those stories that are outside the, the, the realm of the, the commonplace, if you can find those unique stories, those are the stories that are going to attract the attention of readers. So from a PR perspective, what we want to generate are those stories that will make people go, huh? Uh, you know, and a quick example um, <clears throat> from our focus on the family years was, you know, this idea that we made at one time there was this this uh, this local paper that was vehemently anti-focus on the family, wrote horrible things about focus on the family all the time. And they they gave us their readers in their reader poll awarded focus on the family the claim to shame award for the city of Colorado Springs. And they had a gala every year. They have a gala for this event. Everybody dresses up in black tie and goes. And so we got the notice. And it's like best restaurant and best TV personality. So most of them are positive awards. And we got the notice that we won, but they didn't expect we'd show up. And myself and someone who worked for me who was uh, our director of community relations, we just said, okay, let's go rent tuxes and go. And we rent tux and we rent and we rented tuxes and went, and it, it changed everything. Because why? It upset expectations. They didn't expect us to come. And that was a man bites dog moment. And that led to several man bites dog stories and partnerships and opportunities to advance the mission and message of the organization through this place that up until then it hated us. Well, and and knowing you and knowing the relationship between the Colorado Springs Independent and Focus on the Family up to that point, right. they, they had been on complete polar opposites. They still are on complete polar opposite sides of the political spectrum. Yet, through you and Rajiv going to the event, it started an open a dialogue between between focus leadership and the leadership of the independent so that when it was, was it the uh, Canyon city fire or was it the black forest fire? I think it was the black forest one. It was the one on uh, around the 4th of July in uh, 2012. Okay. So the black forest fire happens. You, the focus and the independent get together and create this gala, this concert fundraiser concert to support victims of the Black Forest Fire. And right. that was something that had, that never would have happened had you not been the one to try and get some dialogue going between the independent and focus. Right. And that's one of the benefits, one of the things that creating as an author, expert speaker, coach, or a consultant, or as an organization, one of the things you can create by doing by creating news story opportunities that bite the dog, you can create those kind of moments that can transform a community, that can better a community. That's the beauty of it. Love so. that. Yeah, I mean, it, PR is all about the unexpected, right? Uh, I mean, I I love cause marketing and the stuff you're talking about. Can you, I, I want to hear uh, maybe w what's your favorite story from the book? Cause there's a lot of great, great stories in there about a lot of cool people. What's, what's the one that without, you know, giving away the secret sauce that it was a life changer for you? Uh, I mean, the one that's a life changer and Steve's probably, he's probably smiling over there going, I know exactly what he's going to say. Um, the the one that has made the most impact and has has as I say it, it, when you do it right when you upseed 
I mean, upset or exceed. Upseed, I like that. I'm going to create that word. Upseed <laughs> expectations. When you upseed expectations, when you upset or exceed expectations, both in the media and in the marketplace, you have the chance to not just commit news that bites the dog. You have a chance to commit news that, that builds a legacy that lasts forever, that, that has a contrail. And we did that at Focus on the Family uh, for Super Bowl 44. Um, some of your listeners may remember uh, a rather uh, controversial ad. Uh, it wasn't controversial because of the content. It was controversial because of the dialogue around it that Focus on the Family did with Tim Tebow, who was just then coming out of college. And um, all we did at Focus on the Family was create an ad about with Tim Tebow and his mom talking about how they celebrate family and celebrate life. We didn't show anybody the ad. We didn't say what the ad was about. But some people started to speculate out in the out in the me in the world, and they thought, okay, well, Pam Tebow gives a a, a stump speech where she's on the speaking circuit and she talks about how. She was urged to terminate her pregnancy when she was pregnant with Tim when she was in the Philippines on a mission trip and focus on the family. Well, they're pro-life or as they would say, they're anti-abortion. So some somebody cooked up in their minds this idea that we had produced this 30-second spot to air on the Super Bowl that was going to be some political screed that was going to be both, you know, nasty and perhaps graphic. And they did the worst thing they could have done for them and the best thing that they could have done for us. They complained loudly and often without ever having seen the spot, assuming what the content was. And what we did right was hold to our guns. One of the key strategies I talk about in the book is have a plan and stick to it, regardless of how tempting it might be to get off script. Stick to the plan. Our plan was this is an ad about celebrating family and celebrating life. I still wake up in the middle of the night with that talking point coming out of my mouth. It's just an ad that celebrates family and celebrates life and a mother and son who deeply and demonstrably love one another. And that's all the ad was. So many people protested. They <laughs> talked about boycotts. They talked about that if, uh, seriously, I, in the book, I list an entire page worth of just the top tier news outlets who covered that story. That ad cost us at Focus on the Family $3 million to run. That ad generated an earned media coverage more than $35 million, meaning if we had to pay for that ad, for that space in advertising, that's how much it would have cost us. And more importantly than that is that at the end of the day, there was a, uh, the Barna Group did a poll and it found that um, of all the people who saw the ad, a certain percentage of them uh, said it, it, it led them to change their position. Uh, it led them to reconsider their position on abortion, not change it, not even change it to agree with us, but to reconsider it. And it was only like a, you know, a small percentage of people who did it. But when a hundred and some million people watched the show, a small percentage is a number is a whole lot of people. And there were, I don't have the number in my fingertips right now, but there were more than I okay, do. Okay, Steve, go for it. All right, so this is what you say. According to Barna polling, 43% of those who watched the game said they saw the Tebow ad. That's 45.7 million people. And 6% of that 45.7 million people is 
1.42, so 2,742,000 people that saw a pro-life ad from a pro-life group and it caused them to personally reconsider their opinion about abortion. Does that mean they changed their opinion to one aligned with Focus's view? No, it doesn't mean they changed their opinion at all, but it does mean the ad made them think about an issue central to Focus. Correct. So if you talk about what's the best impact for creating a man bites dog story, you want people to think about your message. You want people to think about your distinctives. You want people to think about what it is that separates you from the competition. And we did that by playing against type. They thought they were going to get a political screed and they got what we used to call focus 2.0, softer and gentler, not on principle truth, but a little bit different in the way that we communicated that truth. They thought they were going to get focus on the family culture war edition, and they got focus on the family 2.0. And it led to $35 million in earned media. And here's why that's important. $3 million were spent on an ad. One of the things I did in the book is I did some research and it, it, to discover that yeah, advertising and earned media coverage are both ways to get your message out. But earned media, which you don't have to pay for, is 80% more effective than advertising in conveying your message to people. The way I like to put it is advertising will build awareness. That's the reason so many people do it on the Super Bowl. You want people to know about your product, advertise. What earned media does will build affinity. People will begin to understand what makes you different from the other folks who are out there. They'll understand your distinctives and they'll begin to like you a little bit more. Hard to make people like you more with advertising. If you have cute kids or puppies or sometimes you can do that. But when a third party comes in and affirms you by doing a news story on you, that is 80% more effective than paying for it. So it doesn't cost you anything and it's 80% more effective. I'd say that's probably a good thing to pursue. Absolutely. You know, people see non-paid media as being more authentic because if other people are going to talk about you, that must be better than if you're talking about yourself. So Correct. that's a great, great story and a really, uh, you know, a typical media one, right? Where they're running off half cocked and right. we all know what happens when you assume. So that's a fantastic story. So how are you feeling now as a book author? You've sort of done this whole spectrum, right? You start yeah. out as, as the the media guy who wants all the answers and is, you know, peppering people with questions. You transitioned into communications, and so you're sort of managing the message. Now, as a book author, you are trying to get PR for your book. So what have you learned now on the, the flip side? It's – well, A, it was a lot harder to write a book than I thought it would be. I've been writing for a living in one, in one form or fashion for 30 years. Right. So I kind of sauntered into this book writing thing like the new sheriff in town. Right. I'm going to knock this baby out of here. It's going to be no problem at all. And about like a week into it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. And my publisher had to get me on the uh, you know on the right track. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be uh, to do because it's just different than journalistic writing or public relations writing. Yeah. But <clears throat> the reason I wrote the book is to put into folks hands the the strategies to understand the important public relations and also understand the practice of public relations. 
Uh, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that I advise in there, and it's not, it is not a please hire me moment. There are plenty of folks who do what I do. I think I'm fairly good at it, but there are plenty of folks who do what I do. But one of the things I encourage people to do is you need to be coached and beyond being coached, being cared for by someone who is helping you get your message out there. Um, so the book's purpose is to sort of walk people through the importance of public relations, who was the very first public relations client, which is one of my favorite parts of the book, um, how to, you know, know what the media is like as well. The, the two main things to know is what are your distinctives? Know, know yourself and then know who the, who the press are. Because the press are, you've got to get through them. You may want to reach the audiences that they have, but you've got to have messages. You've got to have stories. You've got to find bite the, you know, man bites dog stories that are, that are going to make the press interested or they're never going to give you access to their folks. The hooks, so, I, I call it the hooks. You know, what are right. the hooks it's gonna, the media is going to be interested in? Right. You've got to go through them in the same way that a football team's got to go through the defense to get in the end zone. Now, here's a here's the other thing about the press um, that I, I've, I've been preaching this forever and ever and ever and ever. A lot of people, especially Christians, especially Christians who might lean more conservative ideologically, think the press are evil, horrible, rotten people. I like to tell folks that somewhere between best friends forever and spawns of Satan are where most <laughs> journalists fall. I was a journalist for 15 years, never once, never once did we have a meeting, a secret meeting in the bowels of the building of the He-Man Conservative Haters Club. Never once did we play Don Henley's Dirty Laundry and sing, kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down, kick them all around. We didn't do that. Most people are legit. They want to get the news. They want to get the story. Don't confuse that with Sean Hannity on the right, Rachel Maddow on the left. They get paid to have opinions. That's different than true journalists. True journalists, it's impossible not to have bias, not to have an opinion. They will have it. But it is possible to have fairness, and that's what you're looking for. I, I was a reporter. I sat in a courtroom. I watched. I watched. I listened to testimony of people I knew were guilty. But when I sat down to write my trial story, I made sure I was fair because I was aware of that bias. I think most journalists still operate that way. And that's the thing that we have to remember is that what we need to put before them isn't an ideology as much as it's a story that they're, that their audiences are going to want to read, listen to, or watch. Gary, one of the things that you say in the book that I completely agreed with, and I don't think I've ever heard you say it before, is that labeling it the mainstream media is a colossal yes. mistake on the oh, part yeah. of conservatives, on the part of evangelicals, whoever it is that's calling it the mainstream media. Why is that? Explain that to yeah. the listener. Yeah, the we self-labeled it that way as, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative Christian and we I, I didn't do it myself, but I mean, our movement, quote unquote, labeled it that way. And the reason that it's a problem is as soon as you say the mainstream media, what does that then make you? Outside right. the mainstream. Outside the mainstream. So you're marginalizing yourself and saying that these guys are the are the mainstream. It's far better to say, I mean, secular media is even better, even though if we went out on the street right now and tried to find 10 people and ask them, what does secular mean? Eight of them wouldn't know. And the other two would go, oh, it's probably good that the media is not religious. Uh, you know, so there are other terms 
that are that are that are better uh, to you know to use for that the uh, you know big media I've heard I've heard you know a few things like that 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 are that are far better to use um, uh, than mainstream I mean mainstream is just I think I the headline in the book I refer to it as worst branding ever um, because it's just not. Uh, it's just not a good thing for us to do. We we start out with one foot in a bucket when we're trying to make our point, when we're saying that we're somehow showing ourselves in opposition to the mainstream media. Well, we're the guys, we're the lunatic fringe then. That's, we got to yeah. stop doing that. I love that. I call, um, I call that the for-profit media and not, in, you know, giving the impression that everyone else is not for profit but if you can just kind of give that little flavor well they're just in it to make a buck then people it makes people sort of take a second a second look at it so i love that yeah i mean and, and i tried to do that at, at you know in, in certain jobs and people just weren't weren't having any part of it so you know big media is a good one elite media is not bad um what i love about elite media is that it kind of suggests you know smug prigs like Fraser Crane, right? When you say elite media, what do you think of immediately? You, you think these guys who think they're better than you and, you know, nobody wants to be identified with, with being an elite. So that, you know, those kinds of things, but it, that all goes back to one of the fundamental propositions of public relations. And that is knowing what you stand for and framing what you stand for in the best language possible, because that's going to be the, the differentiator once you do get to the audience of those media outlets, that's going to be the differentiator that's going to be memorable. That's going to be what, beyond reading the story in which you're featured, they're going to seek you out for your products and services because they're going to see that you're different. So, Gary, in the book, you say having something to say is not half the battle. So what mm. is what 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 are the steps in which uh, somebody listening can practically take what we're talking mm. about and start to apply it to their coaching practice or their business or their career? Right. Yeah. What I love is, you know, you say in here that um, it's it's not dumb luck and it's not rocket science. It's somewhere in between. But what right. I love about this book, you know, I, I come from. Um, the product marketing world, right? Where, you know, to go hire a, a PR firm is thousands and thousands of dollars a month. And so what I love in your book, you I like sort that, of, by the way. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was my before world. Right now. I'm a I'm a ref, I'm a reformed workaholic. So um, so now I'm broke, but that's OK. Uh, <laughs> so now, um, you know, but I love you basically taken the PR sort of um, process and you've broken it down here for people like me, you know, for people like Steve, authors and speakers and executive coaches and consultants, you know, who don't have a corporate budget to go hire a giant PR firm and you've uh, and you've sort of boiled it down for, for us so I love that well thank you yeah that was the the intention was to be a little bit guidebook uh, a little bit handbook and then a little bit there as Steve has mentioned a little bit memoir in terms of some of the stories that help illustrate but you know to your question Steve yeah I mean we tend to think if you have something to say um, that's half the you know that's half the battle and then uh, if you have something that people want to hear, that's another half of the battle, and that's good. But the, the third part of the battle 
So it's really thirds. The third. So it's having something to say. It's having something that people want to hear. But then it's having something to say and saying it in a way that arrests the imagination and the attention of those who hear it. You want to put your best rhetorical foot forward. You want to craft what it is you're saying in ways that listeners or viewers or readers will go, whoa, that's different. Uh, that that something about that, you know, to finish the explanation that, that PR is not rocket science nor dumb luck, it's the wise leveraging of expectations and opportunities in both the media and then the marketplace of ideas. So having all three of those is key. So most people start out, most people who are listening to this podcast are, are already at number one. They're an author, expert, speaker, coach, consultant, organization head. They're involved in something. They've got something to say. They probably write a blog. They probably have a podcast maybe, and it, and it reaches a certain number of people. But something in their heart is telling them, I, it's not a big enough audience. It's it, not because they want their, their self-aggrandizing, because they want to reach more people to help more people. And that's where PR can help you do that. So one way that we help do that at Roar, my firm, one way we help people do that is the second third, which is helping them say it in a way that people want to hear it, right? To make people want to hear it. And then the third way is to do it in those ways that really arrest attention and, you know, uh, so that they go, wow, I haven't heard it put that way, quite that way before. That's the three-part process that will then get you starting down the road uh, to using, to, to leveraging PR to make news that matters. Well, I, I, uh, I, I love the book and, you know, I think you, you, uh, there's a great quote that I want you to just tease us a little bit. You say, what can Superman, Moses, and Steven Seagal reveal about the art of public relations? So those are three characters there. So what is that all about? Well, I mean, one of the things I try to do in the book, being mindful of what I just, you know, what we just talked about, right? I've got something to say. Um, I've got something to say I think people need to hear, but I also want to say it in a way that will arrest their attention and their imaginations. Uh, so I tell stories. And uh, one of the things I tell stories about, one of the things I do, I spend an entire chapter in the book <clears throat> on explaining what the media is like, because I've been there. I've worked with them. I was one of them. So what we see on TV, that the, that how the media is portrayed is nothing at all what they're like. And what I go back to is the movie Superman from the 70s with Christopher Reeve. And if any of your listeners or if you guys, it looks like at least Steve, Steve's laughing at the memory. If you remember, there's a huge scene in the movie where Superman first meets Lois Lane. And she's supposed to, she's supposed to be the greatest reporter in the world. And they, she interviews him and she asks him all these stupid questions. And none of them, there's not one thing she gets from him that she could actually quote in a story. You know, I mean, that's not what the press is like. So, I, you know, that's how Superman can kind of help you understand uh, those things. Uh, Moses, I argue, and I don't mind giving this away because it's, uh, this is a, you know, it's a Christian podcast and this is great. Moses, I argue, is the first public relations client. Because when God calls him to lead the people out of captivity, Moses has a million excuses about why he can't do it. Oh, pick somebody else. And God starts throwing out, you know, hey, throw your staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. 
pick it up, it'll be a staff again. The people <laughs> will listen to you and follow you for sure. Moses is like, oh, I'm not sure. God says, okay, put your hand in your cloak, pull it out, leprosy, put it back in, leprosy goes away. People are going to go, wow, we're going to follow this Moses guy. He's got signs and wonders. And Moses is still like, oh, I don't know. God says, okay, spill water from the Nile on the ground. It'll turn into blood. Come on, that's going to do it. And Moses then says this in Exodus chapter 4. He then says, I think it's verse 15, I am slow of tongue and not very good in, in speech. He basically says, I can't speak in a way that these folks are going to want to follow me. So God finally gets exasperated with him and says, fine, what about your brother Aaron? He speaks well. You tell him the words, he'll speak them. And in that moment, I believe the creator of the universe created public relations. And Aaron became the first PR agent. Uh, Moses became the first PR client. For a while, it went well. Um, it ended up not going well eventually, I would argue, maybe, because Moses starts to feel his oats a little bit, thinks he's got it all under control, knows how to talk to the people, reassigns Aaron to kind of be a, a priest, and then all kinds of bad things happen. Moses gets mad all the time. Aaron runs off and starts doing idolatry, and it doesn't work out well. But, um, but that is where it all begins. I in, love in, that. In my estimation. And then, um, yeah, and then Steven Seagal, very quickly, uh, the, the essence of public relations is in the fighting style of C of Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal's fighting style is a martial artist, movie star, is different than anybody who came before him. Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee were all about attacking. They attacked the other guy. Steven Seagal is the exact opposite. Watch and I, I describe, it was the most fun I had writing the book. I described for two and a half pages the most famous fighting scene of Steven Seagal's career in the movie Out for Justice. In, in excruciating detail, I describe everything that happens. But his fighting style, Aikido, is all about using the leverage of the other guy against him to win. So a guy will come rushing at him wildly. Steven Seagal will back up most of the time, kind of like Clapton playing a solo, right? Clapton will back up to play a solo or everybody else steps forward. Seagal won't step forward and attack. He'll back up and he'll use that momentum to flip a guy, knock him over, block the punch, do whatever. PR is just like that. You're using the momentum that exists in the culture. You're using the momentum that exists in the presuppositions and the expectations of the press, and you're leveraging those things. You're exceeding them, you're upsetting them, or you're meeting them. You're taking that leverage, and you're, you're meeting it in a way that will get people to do stories about you that will then reach the masses you want to reach to grow your platform and, if you're a business, to grow your bottom line. So, Love it. Steven Seagal, Moses, and Superman. That's awesome. <laughs> so, Gary, uh, I'm sure some listeners are sitting here listening and thinking, oh, that's great, but I'm in the position of not being able to afford a PR person yet. Mm -hmm. So what are some practical steps that a coach, consultant, business owner, small business owner can do to start that momentum rolling so that way they can engage at a future point an organization like Roar, an organization like yours uh, down the road? Yeah, the, the number one thing to do um, is to build create to whatever extent you can an infrastructure. One of the first things I say to clients in the on-ramping process is 
we're not, and it's funny, Steve, because you're an example in the book of this very thing where I, I talk about the proposal that I had given you and, and I, and I, and I pull some stuff out. And one of the first things I say to people, and it was in that, in that proposal and all my proposals is success is not going to look like lots of coverage early on because we've got to build an infrastructure. We've got to build um, a system by which we know what's going out there what's going on in the culture. What are people writing about? What are people um, in the culture talking about? One of the one of the first things practically that someone can do just to be well read, to be well knowledgeable about what's going on is to create a Google alert. Free. Google alert about the name of your business, the name of the the, the kind of thing that you speak about, the name of Whatever those keywords are that pertain to what you do as an author, expert, speaker, coach, or consultant, be careful. You know, I I, I make the um, uh, point in the in the book that whether I'm advising a, a preacher or a or a pasta maker, that's one of the first things I tell them to do. Now, if you're a pastor, you don't want to have a Google alert for God because you're going to get hit with more of that than you're going to get hit, you know, with emails from China. Um, if, but, you know, find those words that speak to your distinctives and plug those in Google. You can find Google or type in Google alerts in Google and it'll tell you how to set them up. It takes like that. And you'll be alerted as often as you want to be real time once a day when these things are showing up that are part of what you the warp and woof of what you do show up in the news. So that helps you understand what's going on out in the culture. That's a huge part of doing it. Another thing I would suggest that you do, and the book has an example on how to do it. But if if uh, you know if you're not at a place where you can engage the the services of someone like me to do that, is a value proposition. What is it that you value? What is it that makes you distinct and unique? Um, it, and that becomes something you can use in press releases, something you can use in speeches. It's a, I like to say it's the batter from which you can bake a bunch of cookies. And it helps you really drill down to find out what it is you stand for. It goes beyond brand. It's what makes you distinct, unique, um, someone that people are going to want to engage. Both the press is going to want to talk to you because if they don't, they're going to miss a great story. But the people are also going to want to engage with you because if they don't, they're they're not going to be able to grab a product or service that you offer that's important. So the top two things would be work on value proposition. You can search Google for that. It'll give you examples on how to do it. Um, and then set up a Google alert for some of the key things of what it is that you do. So you can be aware of what's going on in the press so that you can um, uh, meet some of those expectations and know what you're after. And the last thing I'll say is be wary of the, of the news release. If anybody comes up to you and says, yeah, I'll write your press releases and we'll get them out there. I used to be a reporter. Reporters don't read press releases. Um, you know, I, I, Steve, we both worked with uh, in an era when, you know, it was it cost 500 bucks to put a press release up on the Newswire. And people don't read that. Um, uh, it's far better to pitch reporters directly. It's a relationship game, and the reporters are going to come to the people who they know are going to bring them, you know, constant um, things that are good. One of the one of the most humbling things I received um, since I started Roar uh, two years ago is Sean Hannity. Say what you will about Sean Hannity. Some people will love him who are listening. Some people won't. But 
Sean Hannity paid me the greatest compliment in, in an endorsement for my business where he said this, he always delivers guests with something my viewers and listeners need to hear. That's what you want to be able to develop is a relationship with a reporter, I would argue, have someone else besides you do it because you're a newsmaker and newsmakers should have someone who handle that stuff. You don't have to worry about it. But that's what you want is to have that relationship where if I email Sean Hannity, Sean knows I'm not going to waste his time. I'm emailing him with somebody who'll be good for his listeners. So I passed that first threshold, um, which is very important. What a cool endorsement. That's awesome. I want to um, I want to go back to the personal stuff just for a minute because okay. I think there's so many listeners out there. Myself. I can tell <laughs> there's so many <laughs> listeners out there that you know are are trying to fill the void. Uh, so let's go back to that because you know you said you had a little mini nervous breakdown and had to be half carried into rehab the next day. Right. Um, and then you know it got a little easier, got a little easier, got a little easier, and then you changed jobs. It looks like right. Yep right after that. Um, but you know, it can't be easy to make those sorts of drastic changes, but I'm curious, when did your salvation come in that timeline? Yeah, it it was a process of, so I quit drinking in April of 1997, unemployed for a bit, took a job in Palm Springs in, um, uh, May, June. So it was a couple months was there uh, in the summer. Um, and then what ended up happening was it was interesting. I mean, talk about newsrooms and talk about the culture of newsrooms and there are not many Christians. I met someone in a newsroom um, and, and I asked her, what it, it, what is it that brought you here? Why are you here? She's a young kid. She was like 23. And she said, well, this is where God called me. And I was like, What? because I had never heard the word God in a newsroom unless it was the, the first part of our second favorite swear word. So I was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. You know, what's that about? And, and, and this uh, woman, uh, and there was another guy who worked there who was also a Christian who she went to church with. They, you know, they could see there was a hole in me. They, they, they saw exactly what size it was. It was a God size hole. And they witnessed to me, talked to me, did those, you know, did those things. And, and, and my, um, it, it, it became a process where that idea of a God of my own understanding wasn't going to work because I, my own understanding got me in this place. So I was intellectually kind of thinking through that. Um, then, you know, the idea that if God was powerful enough to keep me from drinking today, well, you'd think he'd be powerful enough. Why believe in a God that only works in 24-hour cycles? You know what I mean? I mean, I want to believe in something that's a little bit wider and bigger. Um, so none of this is to say to anybody who may be listening that I have I mean, AA saved my life. That was my first introduction. I was unchurched. To walk into a room and have someone say, Jesus, on day one, I would have said, see, and I would have walked out. But the fact that this idea that there was something beyond me that could give me strength was key. It was a key bridge to me to coming to that place. Ultimately, the, that God of my own understanding stuff didn't work. And I, and I came to a place where I was about to drink again. 
I was about to drink again, and God intervened in a uh, in a in a truly miraculous way that I said, "Okay, well, I think I need to go to church now." And I went to church, accepted Jesus, and then everything's been perfect ever since. Not a day has been a problem. Not true, but uh, the the ability to deal with those problems and deal with those things in ways that are constructive, not destructive, is is is, is what that's all about. So. Awesome. And now you're married. And, you know, at what point were you able to have uh, what I'd call normal relationships in that process? Yeah, it was it it, it it took a couple of years. And frankly, you know, it, it's not been, um, you know, it's really interesting what what God, uh, you know, he, he takes certain things away. The alcohol went beep, gone. Right. My struggles with anger. Exist until oh today <laughs> so the things i think that god knew were going to kill me or could have killed me or could have really caused some problem he just he just he just plucked them out took them out took them out and those other things so in, in some things like he says on the cross it is finished that part uh you know being saved is finished but sanctification is a process and a road that we keep walking so it, it was finished for alcoholism, but it, some of those other things continue to be um, something that um, that I still have to walk out. And um, that's one of the great things, again, about being able to come alongside, especially in, in the Christian space. And not all the clients that I work for are Christians. Right now, I've got, you know, I'm still doing work for Hollywood folks. I'm still doing work for, um, you know, there's one guy that, that actually uh, – uh, Steve introduced me to who's in, in the sports field uh, in, in some degree. So I'm dealing with some of that stuff. But to be able to help people who what they do with the words that they speak, the the passions of their heart and the way that they message it changes people's eternity. My gosh, that's a good thing. That was the great thing about Hollywood. I worked in a in a part of Hollywood that was marketing films to Christian audiences and or Christ, or films that were not Christian but had a had a Christian subtext. One of the funniest things was we worked on the Superman reboot, Man of Steel, the firm I worked at in Hollywood. And people would say to me, Christians, why are you working on that movie? I'm like, well, let's see. It's about an otherworldly father who sends his only son to earth to save mankind. I read that somewhere. <laughs> Where have I read that? But, but we had stories of people. We would always get stories of people who would come out of seeing a film and they would go in. They would go into seeing that film um, with an eternal destination different than heaven, and come out of that film with an eternal destination being heaven. That is a great thing to know. It's the same thing that happened with the Focus Tebow commercial. Those are the most rewarding moments, and those are the people I love working with the most. Who, it yeah, it brings them a higher platform. Love to do that for people. It brings them more influence. Love to do that for people. But in the end. It changes the lives in very tangible ways of people who are on the receiving end of that message. All right, Gary. Love bef- it. Gary, before we close this out, one more practical takeaway for the listeners. You mentioned Google alerts. You mentioned getting on the the, the minds of reporters, having having that value proposition that they can that they can propose. How does one get on the radar of a reporter having been a former reporter yourself? How do, how does someone develop that relationship with them? Yeah, the the first place to go is start local. 
Um, the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit is starting local. So you may have an organization that has international reach. You may have an organization or interests that go, uh, you know, you want to speak uh, across the country. But uh, unlike a prophet, uh, a newsmaker is welcome in his own hometown. You will be able to get uh, people to probably cover you. Uh, and that's just, you know, grab a copy. If you're not a subscriber, go online, find out who's writing stories in your local newspaper about the kind of thing that you're doing, that you're interested in. Um, and then contact that reporter, send him an email, give him a phone call. I would recommend giving him a phone call more than sending them an email because emails can be ignored. Phone calls harder to ignore even at, you know, and, and suggest a meeting, suggest, you know, it, it's not unlike, I used to tell people, and I didn't put this in the book and I'm mad about it now that I think about it. I used to tell people that public relations is really just professional flirting. <laughs> the same, the same <laughs> skills, the same skills, the same skills that you learn or that you use when you're trying to get someone to like you are the same skills that you use when you're trying to court a reporter to do a story on you. You want to show them that you're interested in what they're interested in. You want to show them that you offer something that they need. You want to show them that you care about them in ways that, you know, uh, having those kinds of relationships. I used to, you know, and I still do. I still put on my calendar, call this reporter just to say hello. Not always trying to sell a reporter something. So, yeah, practical tip is start local reach out to those reporters on television, on radio, or in the newspaper who are writing about things that you might, you know, that are in your wheelhouse, reach out to them and offer yourself as a story. And it, and if you get one, then that becomes something you can leverage on your website, in your social media, and then suddenly, where are we at? We're at that place we talked about earlier where it's not advertising, you're not paying for it, it's earned media, it's coverage, and it's 80% more effective, and it didn't cost you a dime. Professional flirting. I think that's your second book right there. I can't believe it. I've had like four moments where I'm like, oh, I should have put that in the book. Yeah. I've been telling people that forever, and it didn't that's come to me. That's awesome. So. I think that's your second book right there. What there, do you think, you Steve? I think, I think that's great. So, Gary, in closing... Talk to the listener right now that is in a position where they they have a message, they think they have it kind of honed, but they're trying to get it out there. So talk to them and encourage them to make those next steps and try and get this ball rolling. Yeah, the um, you know one of the things. I'm famously, famously a um, a word guy. I you know I used to I used to say when I was in uh, uh, newspapers that whenever a journalist tried to do any math, uh, an, an alarm bell should go off. Whoop whoop whoop! Journalists doing math because we're so bad at it. So I'm bad at science. I'm bad at all that stuff. But one of the things I created for the book is a formula for what I call you know the ultimate goal of PR is relevance. You want to be perceived as relevant. By your potential cluster, you know, uh, customers and clients, and the and the marketplace, and you want to be considered relevant by the media who will want to come to you, or will want to pick up the phone when you call. So I created a uh, a formula. Me of all people created a formula of how you can get to relevance. These are the things. So wherever you're at it, it, in the the process whoever's listening here and you want to have a higher profile and that to me is relevance you want to achieve relevance here are the things i think go into that identity plus strategy plus opportunity times achievement 
Raised to the power of resilience equals relevance. It's the, it's the ability to know what you stand for, to have a strategy to get it out there, to look for opportunities where you can commit news, as I like to say, then do it as often as you can. Commit news, commit news, commit news, achieve. Raise that to the power of resilience because guess what? If anybody, if people are in the habit of putting a microphone or a notebook in front of you, chances are you're going to say something sometimes you wish you didn't have. It's survivable. Be resilient. If you can do all of those things, then you'll be able to maintain relevance. And then I argue, it's not a word, but I was writing the book, my hands were on the keyboard so I could create it. Re-relevance is what you're really after. You want to be relevant and then be relevant and then be relevant and then be relevant. Love it. Thank you so much. We wish you all the luck with the book. It's fantastic. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm I'm enjoying it very much. So, and it's a, it's great to, as you can tell, I love talking. So this is fantastic. <laughs> Pick up the book Thanks on Amazon. On. You can get it on Kindle. You can, if you have a Kindle Unlimited subscription, you can uh, get the book there through the Kindle Unlimited subscription as part of the that subscription package. Gary, I love you, my man. Uh, I love you. I, I will see you very soon. And yes. uh, when, when you're out here in Colorado next week. And uh, uh, thanks for coming on Eternal Leadership. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. If you'd like to contact Gary or check out his website or services, just go to WeRoar.LA. That's WeRoar.LA to learn more. And while you're there, you can schedule a complimentary, no obligation phone call to discuss your situation. As I said at the top, this edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock. Is there something that feels like it's blocking your business? The team at Marketplace Rock partners with you in unearthing those things that could be holding you back through intercessory prayer. Just earlier this year, Vicki told me while she was praying, she heard from me to water the seeds. I knew exactly what it meant and got some business out of it. Another time she was praying and accurately described one of our dogs who turned out needed medical attention. John and I can't recommend the team at Marketplace Rock highly enough. In fact, our phone calls with them are the highlight of our week. Visit them online, marketplacerock.com, or listen to either of Amy Everett's past interviews with us, episodes 4 and 66, marketplacerock.com. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Mm-hmm.